0: The main point of yesterday's session was to argue that the um, Hallel, which is the central prayer of Chanukah, it's actually very remarkable that we say Hallel on Chanukah. at the central prayer of Chanukah, Hallel, the two, there were two main points. Number one is that the Hallel has a story to it. These six psalms essentially have a have a story. So that's simply the recitation of six psalms. That's point number one. And point number two, related to that, well, not really related, but it may be a separate point, but they're connected, um, is that the Hallel the psalms of Hallel are recalling, which the Talmud calls a song, a song of Hallel. That's the song of Hallel is related to a different song, which is the... You're not forgiven, Frida. That's it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, that it's related to a different song, which is the Song of the Sea. Shirat Hayam is the great song of the Jewish people, and that the Hallel, the psalmist in Hallel, recalls the Song of the Sea in many different ways, and then try to we try to explain what the significance of that is. Essentially, Shirat Hayam, for one thing, begins with the salvation from Egypt. Shiru Hashem Kigo, Sus Forochvah Ramav Hayam, and it concludes with a uh, either a prayer or a statement that God will bring us across to the other side. Ad Ya'avraham Chol Hashem Ad Zukanita the God will bring us to the other side, to the mikdash, to the holy place. In that holy space, God will reign eternal. So it begins on one hand with the Exodus, but it concludes with the idea of entering into God's holy precincts, the temple, etc. So, this frame of moving from the... Exodus story to the temple is the frame of Halel itself. It begins Hashem, <laughs> Hashem, and it continues Betzei Yisroh Mitzrayim, she talks about the Exodus, but then it moves forward within the Halel to a entering into the sacred place, and in two different places in the Halel first in Psalm 116, which I would call pretty much the end of the first piece of Hallel, it ends with this person who's been saved, redeemed, or whatever, uh, saying, asking the rhetorical question, how can I repay God for all the kindnesses? Ma'shi Rashem. And the answer is, I'm going to go to some public place, some public space, to proclaim... To proclaim God's kindnesses, to give a sacrifice of thanksgiving, uchoez bach zevach mekra, and that sacrifice will be brought beit hashem betochechi Yerushalayim. The idea that one who has been saved, redeemed, delivered from some evil, has the responsibility not just to say thank you, but to do it publicly. That that appears in what's one at Psalm one sixteen. And the main point yesterday was the examination of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is actually the story of a person, individual person, also has been redeemed. That section begins towards the the beginning of Psalm 118. Min karatika, I call to you Min from the narrow places, and I want Anani bamerchav ka. Answer me with merchav, with an enlargement. (coughs) Enlargement, we can understand it in many different ways. My understanding is essentially to give me an opportunity to make my own decisions, my own choices, to be free. And a free person can connect to God in a deep way. A person that's not free can't make the choices. So the prayer is a prayer for enlargement of freedom by merchav. And then the main point yesterday was that this Person who is uh, speaking of enlargement or you know a broadening of possibilities is hearing a kolrino vishua tzadikim. This person hears that in the tents of the tzadikim, those who have been vindicated, delivered, or whatever, the righteous ones. He hears kolrino vishua. He hears them with cry out with cries of salvation and joy. And, here's what they're saying, Yimina Hashem Osechayu, Yimina Hashem Romeyma, Hashem Osechayu. That triple. Yimina Hashem Osechayu, Yimina Hashem Romeyma, Hashem Osechayu is ABA. A and C being identical, A, which is A, so A, then B, and then another repetition. And that, when you have that structure we emphasize the middle piece he's hearing and in these tents, they're saying <coughs> and the point that I made yesterday is that Psalm 118 we call Havel the last Psalm of Havel talks about someone who's been uh, found himself, herself in a very narrow space and and actually surrounded. So the idea of encirclement. Kogoyim s'vavuni. They've surrounded me. And sabuni uh, gam s'vavuni. They've really surrounded me. Sabuni kedvori, and they surrounded me like bees. The bees come, they attack you, they surround you from every place. You can't escape. That's true. Remember that, Sally? Are you... <laughs> it's in your house, or you would attack my children, then you almost destroyed us, actually. <laughs> I think David got bit up, too. Yeah, it was in the house there. The bees attacked. There's a bee. a, a, a swarm. They swarm, and they, you can't escape them. They're every, all around, on every side. They almost, we almost, right, pushed me down to fall. But God help me. That was a very central. That is a verse from Shivatayam the first half of the verse of Shirat the second half of the verse is this is my God I will build for God a house the God of my Father I will extol so the extolling the way the psalmist 118 sees it you can praise God privately but if you want if you want to exalt God that's only done inside a house which means a public space so Psalm 118 is the search for this public space. The person is hearing sounds, noises in the Olet Tzadikim now you've set out on a search to find a place where you can share your experience with others. That is Psalm 118 and the successful ending of all this the end Baruch HaBar B'Shem Hashem someone greets this person Mi Mibet Hashem We greet you from God's house and in God's house he then responds and says, "Elu yatav yodeka, Elo haivav You are my God, and I will thank you, acknowledge you, yodeka, Elo haivav I will be exalted, can only exalt God in the house. So you have actually the two in within Haile those two psalms that are parallel psalms, Psalm one sixteen, Psalm one eighteen. They both have the same theme, which they both talk about yodeka, Thanksgiving." In Psalm 116, it's I will bring you a Thanksgiving sacrifice, and I'll do it publicly. In Psalm 118, the person is searching for this space, this space that's not defined in any particular, it's Owe Sharit Sedek. It's the gates of the righteous. And when the person finally arrives at Sharit Sedek, so then the person says, Beit Hashem, be The person says, "Eliyata bi There's the Thanksgiving Odeka, Toda. But in Lokeiva, Roman Mecca, he can fulfill the second half of that verse. Now, what is the point of all this? Apart from the fact that
2: actually, what comes after that Hodu? Yes. Striking the Odeka
0: and then the Hodu. Of course, because once you, the it's the instruction to others. It also ends the, it actually ends the psalm. Psalm 118 18 is framed by Hodu, actually. Kilo basalt. Psalm 118 is framed by Hodu, but you could also make, and I think what Shmuel saying is that once I find a place to say thanks, I can then instruct others to say it as well. Hodu Hashem Kito, I speak in my own personal experience, Min and I have discovered, or I imagine I've discovered this place, and then the psalm ends, so Hodu Hashem Kitov, Kiriolam Chastel. That's the point, that was yesterday's. And at Chanukah, actually, as we say in our Anisim, the Kavu Yimei Shimonah Chadukat Egu, Shimonah Yimei Chadukat Egu, Rodot U Harel, and So the obligation on the is twofold. One is Rodot, to thank, to acknowledge and thank. And the other is Rodot, to praise. We accomplish both with the same prayer we call Havel. Because within the Harel prayer, there's Todah, there's Odeka, there's Hodu, but there's also the, the praises, right? Aroma Mecca. I will exalt God, I will praise God. So the text of the Harel is actually our way of fulfilling our obligation on Hanukkah to Hodu, uh, to Hawel, and furthermore, What's nice about it, particularly vis-a-vis Chanukah, is that since Khanika is, as the word Chanukah suggests, the time of the dedication of the, of the holy place, of the Mishkan, of the Mikdash, rededication of the Mikdash. So, the very six psalms themselves begins with "How Hashem. talks about slavery in the beginning, but you move towards Mikdash. You're moving towards Beit Hashem, which is exactly, of course, the structure of the soul of the sea. It starts with redemption from Egypt. At the end of the soul of the sea, Hashem, <speaking> in, <Hebrew> in that mikdash, Hashem yimroch That was the bulk of what we studied yesterday. And then at the end, I'm at a different, started with a different point that I wanted just to finish this morning, then move to a second point about Purim and Khanika. And the point about Purim was this. The Gemara in Arachin Daf Yud asks the question: How come on Purim we don't say Hallel? After all, Chanukah we say Hallel because how is is recited. The Gemara says on days which have which are holy days, certain holy days such as Pesach, a holy day, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And Sukkot we say it every single day of Sukkot. Pesach, only say it the first day of Pesach. We also have the practice to say it on Seder. First day, first night, whatever. But the rest of Pesach, you don't say halo. Say half hallow. Okay. Which is not hallow. Chatzi halo is not this. It's not hallow. So the point is, so, so, the Gemara says, why on these days? Because this is a You say a shir on a holy day. What does a holy day mean? What's a holy day? How do you know if something's a holy day or not? So there three... Criteria for holy day: two main ones. First is main one: you're not permitted to work. That's the first one. It's a melacha. The holy days of the Torah are days when you're not permitted to work. The holiest day on our calendar is what? No. Shabbos. Oh. Shabbos is holier. Actually, Yom Kippur is a close second. Actually, Yom Kippur is Shabbos is holier because even though Shabbos and Yom Kippur have the same restrictions of work Shabbat has the most serious punishment for it so Shabbos is and Yom Kippur is a close second it's a capital crime in the Torah so the point is Shabbos is the holy <laughs> day Yom Kippur is second and Pesach Hanukkah is not a holy day at all <coughs> zero no holiness on Hanukkah you can work the other the other point of a holy day is on the holy days of the Torah you bring sacrifices that's the second component of a holy day there is a holy day. If you, the primary one is the absence of work, prohibition of work. Kedusha and limitation are tied together. There's no question about that. But the point is, there is a day where you do bring extra sacrifices, but it's not, it's not forbidden to work. That's Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is on the list of holidays in the parish of Musafim, but not on the list of holidays in, the, in Vayikra. With the Vayikra list the days you're not allowed to work. What about Hanukkah? So why do you say hallo on Hanukkah? You just said that, the Gemara says, we just said that you only say hallo on holy days. To which the Gemara says ha- Hanukkah is different. It's not about a holy, holiness. It's about the miracle. should Nisa. It's a special harach to say hallo on Hanukkah to acknowledge the miracle of Hanukkah, the deliverance from the Syrian Greeks, whatever they were. Maybe the Afro-Jews as well. It doesn't matter. The point is the Gemara says "Bishum Nisa if it's a matter of the miracle what about Purim? Purim is also a miracle. How come we don't say how on Purim and the Gemara has three different answers to that question. Okay. The one that interested me yesterday they all interesting. How a, a festival took place outside the land of Israel was still Achashverosh's servants we can't say Avdei Hashem was there still the servants of Achashverosh. and the third answer was the one that interested us yesterday. The Gemara says on The reading of the Megillah itself is Halak. Instead of saying Halel, we read the Megillah. So that question is, what does that mean? That we're saying Halel instead of reading, instead of saying Halel, we're reading the Megillah. <laughs> so I had a thought that I wanted to share, and I started to share it yesterday, and that is that one way to read the Megillah, there is a way to read the Megillah, which is not the way we usually read it. The thought was that the following. The thought was that the Megillah, one of the questions when you study the Megillah is what is God's role, if any, in the Megillah? Because God is never referenced directly in the Megillah at all. Certainly God never speaks in the Megillah. It's hard to find any reference whatsoever to God in the Megillah. Some people try to say, deliverance will come from a different place, makom Okay, maybe, but God is not called makom in the, in, the, in the Bible. Mokoma is a rabbinic name for God. It's true. But the Bible doesn't know from such a thing. So there is no direct reference to God in the Megillah. So there are three different approaches to God in the Megillah. I mean, there's three. One is <coughs> to say that God is, ain't in the Megillah at all. There is no God in the Megillah. It's say very simply, this book does not mention God at all. It doesn't mention it. God is not there, and one can read the Megillah, whether it bothers people or not that's a separate issue but the fact of the matter is when you read the Megillah you can read it that way if you wish to do so not only that I made the claim yesterday that what emerges from the folk customs of Purim I'm not saying people consciously are aware of this by the way but what emerges from the set of not any one particular custom but from the set of many many customs 12, 15 different practices that Jews at least Ashkenazic Jews have been doing for hundreds of years some of them more than than hundreds of years, you get a sense from the practices that what the practices point to is that the world is a place where things can happen and there seems to be no particular Seder. It doesn't seem to be a particular plan, let's say. And that's exactly the opposite of what we have on the main Jewish holiday. and the main Jewish ritual. The Jewish people have one main ritual, we have one main ritual in our tradition, one. We have many rituals, and they're important. But you have to pick out, someone says, what's the main Jewish ritual that the Jews observe? The answer, without question, is the Seder. It's no brainer, actually. The Seder is, yes. now the Seder is called the Seder. But the earliest attestation of that is not clear. But the rabbin talks about a Seder advarim, but it actually is an ordered event. And I want to talk about the, the idea of a seder is very important. In other words, the seder, sitting down that the seder, the, the meal, the Passover meal at night, is called the seder because it is an ordered event. Now, what, what, what do you mean by an, what is the order of the event? What do you do with the seder? So, you know, there's a different uh, instructions about the order, Many people are familiar with, and there were many different like table of contents for the seder. The one that many people are familiar with is imprinted in many many haggadot. Is in the beginning of the haggadah, kadeish Kadesh kadeish olchats, karpas yachatz, Magi rochaz, motzi matzah, right? Barakore shulchan oreh, sofun barak, havdalah Nilsa Depending how you count them, either fourteen or fifteen uh, things that you do in this order so the event is ordered the deeper point about the deeper point of the seder it's a very important point about the seder the deeper point about the order of the seder is that fundamentally well there are two deeper points one point has to do with that the order of the seder the seder is ordered in the following way not just by the table of contents but there's an ordering principle at the seder you know what that is?
2: Sure. what is it? Telling the story
0: from the Moose to Shema. To, no, that's true. That is, there is an order to the telling of the story. But I meant an order to the entire events of the Seder. The ordering. I don't mean that. It's true. Same from slavery to freedom. The ordering, the thing that orders the Seder. Maybe we should be just learning about Seder. I don't know. The thing that orders the Seder is the four cups of wine. One of the ordering principle the four cups of wine function at the Seder to order the Seder. But by that I mean, see, it depends whom you ask, what do you do at the Seder? If you ask a Witzbach, okay? So, the Witzbach will say very simply At the Seder, you perform four, uh, four, there are four mitzvot that night. The four mitzvot, very simple. First mitzvot is to make kiddush, because it's yantaf. You make kiddush every festival the first cup actually. It's Kiddush. That's one mitzvah. Then we have a second mitzvah that night. It's called Sipu Yitziet Mitzrayim to tell the story. So after you tell the story what do you do after you tell the story? You drink, you drink a cup of wine. Then do you, you drink a cup of wine you make a blessing over the cup of wine. What blessing do you make? Gal Yisrael is correct. You make a blessing. G'al Yisrael gal Yisrael. And then together with that blessing, you make another blessing, Boreh Priyay because you've got to drink it. <laughs> Same as Kiddush. The Kiddush is a bracha. The Kaddish Yisrael Viyaz Together with the Boreh you're going to drink it. That's it. So the second mitzvah at night is to tell the story. So that's the second cup. What's the third mitzvah? Pesach night. What's the third thing we do? Pesach night. We eat, basically, right? <laughs> so we have a Pesach. We don't have the carbon Pesach anymore. We have an become we have matzah, we have Mara, we have a suddha of yantav. So after we finish our suddha of yantav, what do we do? Birkat Amazon. What is birkat Amazon? mazon Birkat Amazon. three blessings, four blessings, three plus one blessings. Birkat Amazon is statements made in the form of a blessing, a bracha. Bracha is a technical term. to Hashem, right? And together with birkat Amazon. We say the bricata Mazon over a cup of wine, and we drink the cup of wine. Generally speaking, when you say bricata Mazon, you're not obligated to say it over a cup of wine. You can. You can say it all the time. You want to bed? You don't have to. But the one time that you actually have to is the Seder, because at the Seder you need four cups of wine. The third cup of wine is a cup over the meal. Bricata Mazon, which is actually Mazon is actually part of the meal. That Grace after meals is not correct, actually. Technically speaking, the meal ends with Birkata Mazon. That's in a different conversation. That's actually an important point. Doesn't matter. Point is, that's the third cup. Third mitzvah. and there's a fourth mitzvah. What's the fourth mitzvah? Hallel. The recitation of Hallel is a mitzvah, which we do. We, we say Hallel. Then we say Hallel HaGadol Then we say Birkata which is Nishmat Kochai. And after we say these, Merch, Mulah, Batishmachot which is another bracha that that we make very a So the the Dawit Kosot are essentially the way you order the Seder. (coughs) That's what a litvak would say and it's 100% true. That there are four mitzvahs and the the cups are not just a discrete mitzvah of four cups of wine, they're the way to order the events of the evening. Okay. Then, the truth of the matter is, apart from the 15 steps and the four cups, the truth of the matter is, there's one main, main point about the Seder. There's one main ordering principle of the Seder, or one ordering idea of the Seder, which is this. The Seder consists basically of, of two things. In the Chumash, it consists of one thing, actually. In the Chumash, the night of the 15th, Passover night, is the night you eat the sacrifice you brought in the daytime. It's called the carbon Pesach. So in the Chumash, you eat the carbon Pesach with matzah, with maror. That's what you do at night. The chumash itself, when you read the chumash, you don't get the sense necessarily that it's any other thing you do at night besides eat the paschal sacrifice. But the gemara's understanding of the chumash, the whole rabbinic tradition understands that no, there's the second mitzvah, at the seder, and that is to tell the story. It's very unclear in the chumash actually that that night is a mitzvah. But that's the rabbinic understanding. Why is
2: it not clear though? It says that he got it done. It doesn't
0: say that night.
1: It, say
0: it. it says Vigadita. Very true. It says many things. But it's not clear that it's not clear that by Yoma, who means that particular night. Someday your children are going to ask you questions. Most of the psukim are clearly not that night. Okay? But that's an interesting investigation. When you read the Chumash is there a sense that that particular night you have to also tell the story or maybe it means in the future when you come into the land you shouldn't forget your story. You shouldn't Transmit the story in any event the rabbinic understanding is as you say that that night is a mitzvah they're
1: covering themselves about that by having the
2: child ask just to make sure it's not because because the the invaluctor is set up when your child
0: will ask you right well they're actually different psuchim one puzzle talks about the child asking (laughs) and Vigalata doesn't actually mention the child asking you at all it says Vigalata even if any of their was shown but in any event, my point is this, let's take for granted, we accept, that there are two mitzvahs on Pes- Passover night, to eat a special meal, and to tell a story. Now the question is, what is the order of that? I mean, if we had to vote here, let's say we could create our own, as is the Vogue, our own Haggadah, or whatever it is, everybody's writing one own Haggadah, I have no problem with that, actually, but... Most of them are so steeped in ignorance that it's, it's, it's beyond belief. But if it's coming from a real, why not? To your own it Great. No problem with that. But if we had a vote on it, let's take a vote. What should you do first? You've got to do two things. You've got to tell a story, and you've got to eat. So what should we do first? Should we eat first, or should we tell the story first? Right. So some would say, listen, if you're going to eat first, you never get to the story. You know what I mean? Right.
1: Tell a story.
0: Ah. Ah. <laughs> eat first, give you energy. Right. Others would say, but if you eat first, people are gonna start eating and schmoozing and it's gonna be waiter ready. Yeah, ready. Yeah, heck with the story. Yeah, you're you're so that's it's like
1: you make a so you mind so mind you you could, We could you fight. Know, I'm sorry. No <laughs> doubt we would have two opinions and fight about it. If, if, what? If the suda is the call there's a specified time for the fight. Is the, first of all, is the Suda the Korma
0: chagiga? The Suda is the chagiga plus the korban Pesach. It's the specified Pesnach. time for both of them.
1: Korban Pesach is later, Korban Pesach, the Afikon. So the Suda is the Korma chagiga. so it's best specified best time for it. It's not specified time. No. no.
0: Any time Any time that night. Any time that night. How did the, the, the,
1: the Rabbi took the liberty to cut the halal into? Is that the problem?
0: It's a very good question. That's a good question what's the question? how do they have the right or why do they chop in the Seder chop the hollow into two parts I said I spoke a little about that yesterday I, 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 I can I can not okay, why me the question okay let me deal with that but let me, I'll, get, I'll, get you, I'll get to you I'll get back to you let me say the, the terms of what we do with the Seder which is a, a Seder Now the point of the Seder is at the Seder we start we start with we, we a meal actually we start with Kiddush Kiddush it begins your meal Kiddush is the beginning of a meal. You're not supposed to eat before Kiddush. If you eat before Kiddush on Shabbos at Friday night, you're eating Friday night meal. If you eat after Kiddush, you eat a Shabbos meal. Kiddush changes the meal into a meal of Shabbat. But the thing is, what's curious is, we don't actually continue the meal. We stop. We wash our hands, actually, we dip some greens, and then we don't eat. We don't eat any matzah then. We stop. We're not going to eat. We put the matzah on the table but we don't actually eat until we tell the story. Then we, then we tell the story, we tell the story, we, and then, in the middle of hollow we break, we, and then we only finish hallow afterwards. So it's very strange. First we start talking, then we eat, then we talk, and then we eat. That's the Seder. The interweaving of those pieces, of what we, the ritual that we perform of eating, and the ritual of telling are interwoven at the Seder. It's not first one, then the other. They're woven together. The weaving together is what we call a Seder. So the, now here's the point about the Seder. The point about the Seder is that the events of the night are highly structured, extremely so, than well, anything else. Fifteen steps, everything in its place. and that, But that reflects something else about Pesach, which is about the Seder. The, what we're saying at the Seder is that we believe what the ritual says. We believe there is a Seder, actually. We believe that there's a Seder means there's a purpose to creation. In fact, the event, leaving Egypt itself, the point is, the question one can ask, the so-called Russia, the, the insolent child asked this question, who cares? Okay, went out of Egypt 3,000 years ago, who cares? Why am I turning my house upside down? Because 3,000 years ago, we walked out of Egypt. And do we even walk out of Egypt? Was the historical evidence? I mean, what is this? That's a very good question. So we, in Russia, we don't. Even if someone asks a question in a nasty way, it doesn't make it a bad question. You know what I mean? It's still a good question. <coughs> what What is the relevance? That's the question. And the answer the Haggadah tries to provide an answer to that question. And what the main answer it gives is the following: that the events of that night, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, are important not because of the history of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. They're important because Yitzhiat Mitzrayim is a fulfillment of a prior promise. And the prior promise is covenantal. It's God's promise to Abraham in the brief and which is fulfilled through Yitzhiat Mitzrayim. So therefore the events of that night are very important. They're a fulfillment of the promise. And in fact, that God claims that promise was fulfilled in a sense even before we went down to Egypt. Because Jacob in the house of Lavan has the identical experience as Israel in the house of Egypt. So Yaakov is fulfilling the covenantal formula even before you get to Egypt. It was the Yitzhiah even before you get down to Egypt. So the idea that the event of Egypt is a, f- a fulfilling of a prior promise. There's a covenantal promise. And not only that, Yitzhiah Mitzrayim is the beginning of a relationship which will culminate in something very great. You have this fifth cup of wine on the table, that God is present in history, is a plan and a purpose and a covenant and all that, that's what we, in one word, we call a Seder. So my point is that the ritual itself, as performed, reflects the deeper point of a Seder. That is the idea of Pesach, and that is the core ritual of the Jewish people. I would say if you had to throw in another ritual that's very important for the Jewish people, it would be another day on our calendar that we probably see as the other... Great, very, very significant day on the Jewish calendar apart from Passover night I would say probably most of us would agree that Yom Kippur is a significant day on the Jewish calendar and in Yom Kippur we have the Avoda so it's Seder yes of course Seder Avodas Yom in fact the word Seder and Karban often go together the word Seder often is used in conjunction with the sacrifice it could be that the Passover Seder is called the Seder Because the meal of the Passover Seder is the carbon Pesach. I suspect that's the actual reason we call it a Seder. So the core days on the Jewish calendar are expressions, consciously or unconsciously. It's pretty in Pesach, it's pretty conscious, actually. There's a plan. There's a purpose to this world, and there's a plan. That's Pesach. When you come to Purim, that's a different story. Yes?
2: That's when we
1: recall that in the Jibush every Friday night. They can repeat is what you just said it makes it part of a whole so that you know, the up becomes part of the entire order of
2: creation so you
0: don't have to, that's wait right. for to come around. that's true and then Natalie onsha on was a kiddish well all the time we remember you see have mis right every day actually every day, every, day. every day twice a day so the point is, but what about Purim? So the question is, what about God in the Megillah? So there are three possibilities. Mm-hmm. One possibility I mentioned is that God simply is not in the Megillah. And one, one can read the Megillah that way. It's a perfectly viable reading of the Megillah, that the deliverance came. And nobody, I think, if you're walking in the street, never heard of the Megillah, it's found this little document in the street, and you read it, I don't think it would jump to mind is the presence of God in history. I don't think any sane person will see God in the Megillah if in and of itself, without reading the Megillah as connected to other texts, I don't think you would ever even suggest such a thing. So certainly that's one reading. I'm not saying people consciously understand this, that their practices end up reflecting such a view, but in point of fact, the set of many, many practices, don't want to get into it again, that's one way to read the Megillah. It's certainly not a traditional way to read the Megillah. That is certainly a viable way to read it. The second way is what is normally assumed. God is not measured in the Megillah, but somewhere working in the background, God is there, God is present in a hidden way, God helps out from a distance. That's the second way to read the Megillah. What interested me yesterday was the third possibility, where I suggested, beginning yesterday, that actually you can read the Megillah in a completely opposite way, and that is to look at the Megillah and say, not only is God not absent in the Megillah, but you can read the entire Megillah as simply working out of God's plan. And why would God, what is God's plan? So God's plan is potentially this, that we know that the Torah says that God has one particular enemy that God is going to fight in every generation, that's Amalek. So, the point is, in the Megillah, the enemy of the Jews, in the Megillah, the primary enemy, is Haman. And he's called Haman Ha'agagie, the Agagite. Agag is the king of Amalek in the book of Shemuel. So, <coughs> God has a war against Amalek, and then the claim that I made is that one can read the Megillah. The whole Megillah is presents the exile as a setup for God to use the Jews as bait, basically, mm-hmm. to entrap Haman. And then when he tries to get the Jews killed, then the, God's partners here, namely Esther and, and Mordechai, will seize the opportunity to have Amalek destroyed, Haman and his armies destroyed, by King Yachashverosh. That was the idea. So then, just one second for that. I just want to repeat what I said. Then, I said, and if you are disturbed by this concept that God takes a bunch of people puts them on the precipice where they presume they're going to be annihilated and they're all crying in the street and the date is fixed how could God do such a thing? Seems rather cruel hearted my point is, maybe he's cruel hearted or not, but we have a precedent for this in the Chumash because that's exactly what God does at, 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 at the sea God instructs Israel to travel a strange route and then of all things be they should go back and return and encamp in front of the Sea of Reeds which they do and Pharaoh says they must be lost these guys they don't know where they're going so he takes his army and his chariots and his horsemen and they're coming up behind us and Israel looks behind them and there's Pharaoh and his chariots Israel looks in front of them and there's the sea no place to go they cried to Moshe, "Why'd you take us out of Egypt? You'd rather die. Why die in the desert? You'd rather die in Egypt. Let's be slaves. Whatever." God, Moshe says, "Don't, don't worry about it. God's going to save you." Atem tacharishun. Just God says, "Keep going." And the split, sea is split, and the Torah says three times, "By Yashuvu Hamayim, by Yosheh by by Yashuvu." The water returned upon the Egyptians. Israel was instructed by Yashuvu. And the waters return upon the Egyptians. In fact, the end of the song of the sea, Shiratayam, by Yosheb Hashem Alehem et Mehayam, by Yosheb. So, so that's the precedent. The precedent is God is bringing B'yashuvu. God brings the waters upon the Mitzrayim and Pharaoh. For God's, cause, and, and why? Because God seems very concerned with God's own glory. God says it many, many times. Now I'm not making it up. B'kavda Pharaoh. God is concerned with God's place, God's glory. God wants people to praise God. Okay? That's what the Chubbush says. So that's the precedent. And use us as bait. Because there we are standing by, we don't know what's going on here. Or we're frightened or whatever. We cried out. Get us back to Egypt. Don't worry about it. Hashem yilachem rochem fiatem tacharishu and you shall be silent. So that was the, that's the, I would say, the, the model, which precedes... The, so, this is a way to read. Now, the question is does this reading have any viability or not? So, I wanted just to, this morning, just to continue with this thought and to make the argument that the Megillah actually recalls Shiratayam. Recalls it, in a, I think, in a very, very deep way It actually will give us insight into Shiratayam. And by the way, when you want, when you, if you want to make a case like this, okay? if you want to understand Tanakh in general, it all begins with the language. Got to find, it's got to be in the words. By the words I mean the words, one text plays off another, one text recalls another. Everything begins with the words. And then once we see the words, then we can agree or disagree about what it means. But the first thing is to see the language. If in fact Shiratayam is being recalled by the Megillah, you would have to find in the Megillah language of Shiratayam. If you can't find the language. You can say no. We, we, it was a good thought, and we, dropped it, we drop it because it doesn't work. So the question is, can we find it or not? What do you want to say, Frida?
1: Well, just backing up, Amalek in every generation, and then you know God does something to zap Amalek,
0: but apparently He doesn't zap Amalek completely because there He is in the next generation. Right. <laughs> Amalek is never. Amalek is in every generation. <laughs> so apparently, what if two things? Either God, for whatever reason, does not desire to destroy Amalek, that's one possibility. There is another possibility which is less uh, less rosy. Not that the first one's so rosy, but no. <laughs> the second one is that not so, much, not so much that God doesn't desire to destroy Amalek in every generation, If the God can't destroy Amalek. Is that, actually, God can't. The, 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 the one actually, the ones who put this forward clearly, Mm. It's in the Kabbalist the Zohar. It's clear in the Kabbalistic tradition. Okay. The Sichra Achva. Well, I remember I tell you, many years ago. Many years ago, it's the devil. The Sitra Ach was okay. the, the demonic side. Okay. You know, many years ago, when I was in Israel, on about 1999. So we were living in uh, Jerusalem, and we we had a pediatrician at the time on Emik if You know the street there. Yeah? Well, typical, nothing typical. A very nice guy. I would say call him a nice, um, modern, orthodox, sort of liberal Jewish doctor. Lovely, good doctor. American
1: or Israeli?
0: Americans, through and through to them. So, American to the bone. The point is, in his office, you, know, you go to a doctor's office, you have books there, sometimes magazines, like usually junk, People, Vogue, 17, I don't know what else. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and sometimes it yeah. was illustrated. No. This guy had this. No, this guy had that same kind of stuff. Some Americans, some Israel. And he had one other safer there, mm-hmm. of all things. Awa Gula What is Awa v'yavatmura? Has anybody ever seen Awa Gula Nobody has seen our Gula Vyavat yet? It's a
2: magazine?
0: <laughs> Not a magazine. Awa Gula Vyavat Mura.
2: Kabbalah. It's, no.
0: Awa Gula is the magnum opus of a Vyavish. Yoy- oh. Satmer. It's oh. the anti Zionist, if you pick up the book, it burns. I mean, it's, it's the anti Zionist diatribe of Rabbi Yerush. Know, now, what was it doing in this office of all things? He may have many, many Haredian patients or something. Maybe someone came one day and wants to save the world and drops this book. Anyway, so I started reading it. I started reading it. And what, here's what struck me about the book. It was the time, I remember at the time being struck by this. It was not the anti-Zionist stuff that, first of all, I expected it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's very credible. But what struck me was something different was that the assumption he makes, actually, is what's, what actually he's assuming. Who actually runs the world? We, you think God runs... No, that's what you say.
2: That's
0: not. God does not run the world. The, citra, the devil runs the world. That's clear in the book. That's it's absolutely clear. clear. <laughs> the devil is running... The, by the way, I must confess, in all, with all honesty... When I look at the last hundred years of of civilization, he's got a point, actually. (laughs) He's got a very good point. It makes perfect sense. It makes sense, I think, no matter where you're coming from, actually. But the fact is, where he's coming from,
2: look at
0: the last hundred years. Look at at yesterday's newspaper. I mean, the point is, that's the assumption he makes, okay? He's assuming... That the devil has this unbelievable power. Uh-huh. So the point is, Amalek, which is the Nachash, which, no. is, which is the Satan, which is the Sidra akhra uh-huh. is a powerful force. And the point of fact, it's, uh-huh. God is struggling with this. We fight with evil. Uh-huh. God wrestles with evil. God's fighting with evil. That is, the Rambam wouldn't like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, that is present in many Kabbalistic verses of the Zohar. It's clear. I mean, there's a actual struggle taking place. Now, that is the God of the war against Amalek in every generation. Where does the Torah say that God is a war against Amalek in every generation? Where is that found? I just you cited the verse. Where is this verse coming from? It's coming from the Book of Exodus, chapter seventeen. Now, here's what's very interesting. This is from Exodus, chapter seventeen. Right after what? That's correct. Shirat is chapter 15. Shirat is chapter 15. By the way, how does Shirat end? The question is where, you, where you end it exactly. But you can make the argument, Shiratayam ends, you could make the argument, there's three different, but one is the bottom of page 144. You could argue that it's not, it's not the actual ending, it's only the highlighted ending. The last words of Shirat on the bottom of 144, Talks about God bringing us to God's temple. Hashem dim goch liyom God will reign eternal.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it continues. Kibasus parol b'rich bova for Asher b'Yam. B'Yashiv Hashem elohem et mei God break the Yam. Uveneisho chuk b'Yab Asher b'toch hayam. Then Miriam gets in. Miriam and Aviyah comes with, the, with, the, with leading the women in song, uh, and maybe leading everybody in song. But certainly, at the end of the Shira, God is the God will reign eternal. That's the end of the Shira, towards the end of chapter 15. And then, beginning in the middle of chapter 15, is Israel's journeys in the desert. So there's several stops. The first is the place called Marah. The waters are bitter. We cry out for water. God gives us water. God gives us some instructions. And the next story, Midbar Sin, we have no food. So we want food, reasonable request. You have the mon of chapter 16. Beginning of chapter 17, we travel to a place called Rafidim. Again, there's no water. And again, we complain about water. And this time, Moshe gets angry. What are you testing God for? What are you testing God for? And the place was renamed Masa or Mariva, trial, testing, quarrel. For there they said... Hayesh Hashem b'kibbeinu Is God in that presence or not? We don't believe God's with us. Next verse: Vayavo Amalek. Amalek comes. So what's interesting is you have Shirat You have a set of trials or tests or whatever. And Vayavu Amalek, and the Amalek. It's interesting. The, part, the, the portion of Amalek, a little portion, We read it on Purim, actually, nine verses. It ends, the last verse, <coughs> Moshe God is God tells Moshe to write this down in a memory in a book. Zikaron basefer. Teach Yoshua. Ki macho I will destroy our mark from under the heavens. And Moshe built an altar, and he called it Hashem Nisi, God is my banner. And he said, Ki al the hand is upon the throne. Yod al Yadakesh has poetic language. Hmm. The hand upon me means you swear. Probably means an oath. Right. Means an oath. Right. Milchamal Hashem B'Amalek. Sounds like God is taking the oath. Hmm. A war against Amalek, be dar dar in every generation. Hmm. Now what's interesting is but when that's you think
1: thinking inscribed on
0: uh, well, no, you, don't really, it's not, you don't have to see it, but you have to know it. That's why it's written down in the book. Actually, you're better off with a book than a That Not everybody sees the altar, everybody can get a book. So the point is, but well, my point is a different point, which is that the Song of the Sea ends with Hashem God is the Eternal King. But the Amalek story ends with a war against Amalek in every generation. So it sounds like what the, what the Midrashim all say sounds like the shot. God will someday be the eternal king but God will not be the eternal king until Amalek is destroyed. Until evil is eradicated from the world how can we say that God is the king? So yeah, we have the obligation to do this work and try to root out evil wherever it may be found. It's found in many places, including inside ourselves, but that's a different story. Point is, what's interesting is that the Amalek story and the Shirah seem to be connected to each other. In fact, if you think about it, the story of Amalek and Shirat and the story that precedes it, at the sea, remember that we were standing at the sea, and behind us is Pharaoh, and in front of us is the Yam, and we say "What would the Mitzrayim, take us back to Egypt we're better off in Egypt right, and Moshe said Hashem Yilochem, God will fight Hashem Yilochem, God will fight V'yatem Tacharishun you should be silent, okay and God will destroy your enemies not only that, you'll never see them again, says Moshe you saw them today go tosifu od we we'll never see them again Hashem Yilochem V'yatem Tacharishun, that's in Mitzrayim chapter 14, chapter 13. When it comes to chapter 17, to Amalek, when you have to fight Amalek, what does Moshe say when you're fighting Amalek? When it comes to Amalek, we have to fight. In other words, and actually in the story of Amalek, when you look at the story, there's a partnership here. Because Yeshua is fighting below. He's the commander-in-chief of the army. When Moshe goes to the top of the mountain, he takes the staff of God in his hands. It sounds like he's engaged in some kind of prayer. It sounds like he's praying, actually. He's appealing to God on top of the mountain, but below the actual fighting, it's Yoshua. So when it comes to Amalek, you don't fight Amalek alone. That is, God won't fight Amalek alone. We have to participate in the war against Amalek. And actually, as I mentioned yesterday... Now, we'll pick up where we left off yesterday. When Mordechai appeals to Esther in the Megillah to go and to intercede on behalf of the Jews and to go to the king, and Esther says to him, I can't go. It's, a, it's against the law. You can't just walk into the king, to the inner chamber. If you're not summoned by the king, you're put to death. Right? So Mordechai says, you're thinking in the wrong terms. Maybe this is your opportunity. This is your challenge. It is risky. You'll figure out a way. Eight kazot, exactly. Im achareish tacharishi Eight hazot, he says. If you are tachareish, if you are silent at this time, there are times where you have to be silent, where God will help you. But not in this book, Mordechai says. Not with Amalek. With Amalek, you can't be silent. You have to actually be active. Yes, my friends. Um, this is
1: fascinating. I'm thinking there's no shira after that victory over Amalek. But, of course yeah. there's no shirah, and I'll tell you why. Uh, but what the Lord says, az-yashir, we have to keep repeating it until the final vanquishing.
2: So True. You, Let me
0: just tell you in terms of the first point, why there's no shira here. Shira in the Torah typically takes place after something is, is uh, completed. Shira is marking a completion. With Amalek, there is no completion. It says, By the way, it doesn't say Yeshua, it says Yeshua weakened Amalek. Now, that's by way of introduction to what I want to say now about the Megillah. There are two things I want to say about the Megillah. One is, I want to finish this point, then I'll give a short recess, and then I want to say something else about the Megillah and the difference between Chanukah and the Megillah and Purim, which is very simple. I'll just say it now, we'll get to it later. We had this program here, and we had two of the speakers of people who also are engaged, one primarily, but well, both of them are basically historians. That's Aaron Kohler and uh, Malka Asimkovich. They're basically historians, and they brought in some interesting historical stuff, and they no doubt cited for Maccabees, the Book of Maccabees. Here's a very important point about the Book of Maccabees. Don't forget it. The Book of Ma- Maccabees is not part of our Bible. From our perspective... It's an interesting book. There are many interesting books. It's not part of the academy. Hanukkah is a holiday with no text. Let's remember that. No text. So there those two words. N-O text. You can recite in Maccabees from today till the Yadul. doesn't matter. There's no text. It's a, it's a holiday with no text. And Purim, actually, even though in the Megillah, Megillah emphasizes the word safer over and over again. And... Even though the Megillah never says, you read the Megillah. The Megillah never says that, it hints at it. But certainly in the Mishnah, the tractate there is no tractative Purim in our, in, our, in our, it's called Masechet Megillah. The Megillah we have. So the Megillah is, the Purim for us, as understood rabbinically, is all about a text. Purim is a text holiday, and the Hanukkah is a zero-text holiday. That's a very important point. So if we have time today, I hope we'll have time. I want to talk about the idea of a text and Purim. but before we get there, I wanted to um, say something about this connection of Amalek to the Shiva, and and, and look, look, you have to look at the Megillah for this. So this is, I would say, this is I would call this speculative. I like it, but it's,
2: it's speculative. speculative.
0: It's at the no, it's speculative because well, a lot of learning is speculative. But there's but it's an honest attempt to understand. So that we call Talmud Torah. Even if it ends up to be wrong, it doesn't doesn't matter, but but, it, but there's something to it. Yeah. Now let's take a look at the McGill. Here it's found on page let's see, one thousand seven hundred book begins on one thousand seven hundred and eighty five But it goes all the way on. It's a long book. It goes on to 1,801. What's interesting is, I can't remember, and it's not actually important to reconstruct my own thought process here, what got me thinking about this. But I will say something. Let's start with chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a chapter we have to study. I'll give you some time later to read through it. It's an important chapter. The McGill has some unique features to it unlike any other book of the the Bible chapter 9 begins describing the war of the armies of Haman against the Jews and their allies at this point if you remember in the Megillah King Ahasuerus has thrown his support to the Jews he's been convinced it would appear by the queen that Haman was actually his enemy Haman was out to get him maybe he's thinking about the crown Maybe he's contemplating becoming the king himself, which he probably is doing, actually. After that, props him up with the invitations to the meals and everything. And this is a guy who doesn't need too much propping up, by the way. But, uh, but she props him up to the level of, maybe I could be king. Which is something, if you think that, in the realm of HaShverosh, you're a dead man. Remember when Mayor Koch was the mayor in New York? We had the signs in the street, the parking signs. Don't even think of parking here. Remember that? Yes, don't, even, yes. don't even think of parking <laughs> here. That's not, don't even think about that crown. Because the moment you think about it, and you actually express it, when well, the, what he should he mean to the dead. one the king when you're, you're dead, well, basically? After what? After
1: was also grabbed, militarily,
2: he grabbed the crown. Also That's not in the, the text at all. No, no, but
0: That's a, those are I traditions. Know, the McGillits suggest nothing of the sort. It does suggest that he sees himself potentially as weak. That's possible. Because he says, well, to the No, he says, right, well, he's, right, he sees Haman probably as one way to make yourself king is to grab the queen. But here, the point is the war is described on page 1798. Now, take a look at this. Actually, even above, before, end of chapter 8, verse number 17. Uvachomadinau, umdinau, vachoir, vachir. So in all the, this, the, the decree has just gone out, the king supports the Jews. Ah, so the Jews are very happy, and not only that, many are Mityahadim, probably siding with the Jews, if not converting, but at least siding with the Jews for the fear of the Jews has fallen upon them. That's the last verse of chapter 8. Then we continue with chapter 9. The 12th, the month came along that the, the enemies of the Jews had sought to destroy them. But it's all the opposite. Verse number 2. <laughs> Here we have verse number two. The Jews gathered together. No person stood before them. No person challenged them, one might say. Or was able to destroy them, defeat them. Why not? Because their fear had fallen on all the nations. And now we have the next verse. The officers, the various stewards, officers of the king, they were raising up the Jews, lifting up the Jews, honoring the Jews, showing deference to the Jews. Why? <laughs> For the fear of Mordechai had fallen upon them. So the text of the Megillah, three times has the same expression... Mordechai And all this takes place after the um, after the uh, after the new decree has come out, and after the death of the execution Haman, which appears at the end of chapter seven. Haman is executed at the end of chapter seven. So what got me thinking about this is the expression Kino fal pachat hayudim So I began to think the following way. Where's that coming from, that expression? Of course, the Megillot, Megillot is an unbelievable book, has many, many, many references to other biblical texts. The trick of the Megillah is trying to figure out what are the primary ones, what are the secondary ones, what are the tertiary ones, etc., so it's like this. Nafal Pachat Hayudim alehem reminds us without question of a verse in Shirat Hayam. Shirat Hayam. talks about, actually talks about the nations of the world being frightened. And it uses in Shirat Hayam, seven different words for fear. It begins with the following. Shamu Amim Yirgazun. If you don't remember it by heart, you can find this. It. Chapter 15. It's the Song of the Sea. It's also in the Siddur. Shamu Amim Yirgazun. Chil Achaz Yoshbe Pelashes. Yirgazun is one. Chil is two. Ozniv Halu is three. Eweb E-we- Yochazemu Rad is four. Radar is four. <coughs> Nomogu is five. Koyoshbe Kanan five. And six and seven are the next verse. Those are the seven verbs. Of, when we left Egypt and God split the sea, says the song of the sea, the world is trembling. The nations of the world are trembling. The poet, whoever the poet may be, who wrote the Psalms that we say for Hallel, there's no attribution to this. We don't know what it is. But in any event, it doesn't matter. The point is, when the poet has a has a, has, a, has a variation on this theme, that is when we left Egypt, the world trembled. the world being the rivers and the mountains. And the poet asks the rivers and the mountains. And the water is why Malakhayam Kitanus? What are you running? What are you afraid of? Why do you skip? Why do you jump? Why do you run? Why do you flee? From the God of Chuli which possibly relates to Chil. Before the God, we tremble. Chil. Chil is first of the Chil Acha's, Yoshrey right? Chil Acha Yes, the word Chil actually has several meanings, but the point is. The poet of Hawel transposes it not to the nations of the world trembling, but to the world. The world of we left, and not to crossing the sea, but to leaving Egypt. So now it's like this. The na- all the nations of the world are trembling, right? That's what it says, including Edom. But there's one nation apparently that doesn't tremble. Just one. At least. Amalek. Vayavu Amalek. It's actually very interesting. Amalek is different in the following respect. In other words, Edom, let's say Esav, is the father of Edom. When we try to cross back into the land in the book of Bamidbar, Edom blocks us from going through. Let us cross, please. Let us come through. Forget it. Come out with a sword against you. But with Edom, at least, you could say we're trying to encroach on Edom's territory. And who says, you can't pass through my land. But Amalek is different. By Yobo Amalek. Amalek's nowhere nearby. We're traveling in the desert. What's Amalek there? Not near Amalek. By Yabo Amalek, pre- Amalek pre- pre- preemptively comes, preemptive strike against us, and they're not afraid. The whole world is shaking. But Amalek is not shaking. Says so the Megillah. Let us say you got rid of Amalek, actually. Let's say you could remove Amalek from the story, at least short term. <laughs> then what would happen? Says the Megillah. If you remove Amalek from the story, then actually you could revert back to Shirat when the nations of the world are trembling. Amalek, Amalek represents the part of the world that doesn't tremble. And when Amalek challenges God, basically, because that's what Amalek is challenging, Amalek challenges God so the nations of the world don't tremble anymore. But if you can get rid of Amalek get rid of our God, get rid of Haman, then what happens? Then you revert back to Shirat which is Tipul a matav a pachad. So the triple T'kinafal Pachad Mordechai Pachad Ayhudim Pachad yehudim is a way of saying, in effect, that once you get rid of once you get rid of Haman, the meyah Me'ah Shembelesem Me'ah Me'ah on the contrary, the world wants to join you. The world goes with the winner. So the world wants to join you. So, but only when you to, to get rid of Amalek. So that got me thinking, actually. That got me, that's what got me thinking. That I wonder to what extent... Because obviously the Megillah, Amalek in the Megillah is very central. That's for sure. So the question is to what extent we can find other references of Amalek in the Megillah and even make this argument that perhaps God is not a, a absent in the Megillah God is not even present from a distance, but God is actively engaged. I mentioned yesterday the idea of Yachania. I think it's a play on Yachania. Yachin, God is preparing the way. Memuchan, Hechin, Yachania. And now I was thinking about the following thoughts. First of all, I mentioned yesterday that in the Hallel service, it talks three times in Psalm 118, which is the the critical Psalm of Hallel. That this person who was delivered, Mirame Mesa who was delivered from the narrow places, says, Ozivizimrat Ka. Shivat, Oziv Ka, but he also hears that Khorina mean, He hears the cries of salvation in the tents of the righteous. And what are they saying? Yiminashem Osechayu, Yemina Hashem Romeimah, Yemen Hashem I pointed out that Yimin Hashem, God brings salvation with God's right hand, or right side, okay? That's a term that appears three times in Havel, and it's a term that appears three times in Shiva Hayam. Yimin Hashem nedari bakoach, Yimin Hashem tirat so notita Yimina Emo Aretz. And I began to think about the Megillah. If in fact, let's, let's assume this to be the case, that God is waging war against Amalek, and God is using Israel... To, to, to defeat God's enemies God has a little personal vendetta with Amalek because Amalek is God's enemy not just Israel's enemy but God's enemy So, but God, but Amalek God, God is not going to just bring about God will use the human to fight Amalek who is the human that God uses to defeat Amalek who is Amalek's main enemy in, the, in, in Megil and Esther Mordechai, obviously Mordechai Mordechai is the one person who doesn't acknowledge Amalek, he won't bow down to him you. <laughs> Mordechai Ayu he's a Yehudi, but there's something else about Mordechai
1: <laughs>
0: Ish Yimini mm. he's
1: oh.
0: Ish Yimini oh. and now with something very curious in other words Ish Yimini oh. is playing off in other words here's the point whether this argument works or not is here, here's how you can it's not a mathematical proposition but what you do is there, there are two ways how do you have if is a good interpretation or not it works. What does it mean to work? Well, it works in two ways. First of all, it addresses many problems in a text. That's number one. And second of all, if you, if you want to say text A relates to text B, you have to find several connections between A and B. One word alone is insufficient. Usually, if they are connected and you find one word, you find ten. Once you see it that way, you find many words. Then you have to make a judgment. Is this an accident or is it something actually, are the two somehow bound together? So I was thinking, apart from the Nofal Alehem, apart from that, and apart from, actually, the fact that in the story of the Torah, the Yashuvu Hamayim al-Mitzrayim, right? The end of the Megil, when it talks about Haman, Ubevala lefnei when the when she came before, she or the matter came before the king, in chapter 9, the king said, Yashuv makshav Torah ra'a shal chashav that the matter should be al which is another interesting, which of course is true. Everything Haman wants to do to the Jews happens to Haman. He actually sets up his own destruction, Haman. Right? He sets up his gallows, but he's hanged on the gallows. But
1: Rabbi, yes. is to the connection with Shiratayam because yemin
0: ha, Yes, yes, I, I know. Asked, oh, yeah, but, exactly, as I was uh, saying, uh, in Shiratayam you have three times Yemin, In ha you have three times Yemin. The idea that Ishimini is is the central is a central definition of who Mordechai is. His yes. Ishimini suggests that actually Mordechai is acting as God's
2: right
0: representative, hand. God's right hand. God will defeat Amalek mm-hmm. by using Mordechai because without Mordechai, Esther never gets to the king. Esther is going to carry out the plan, yes. but the one who's aware sees Haman as the enemy. Is actually, but there's something else curious about the Megillah. I'll tell you what I believe. There's another interesting play. Some of these things we take so much for granted, we don't even think of these terms. But in the Megillah, Yemincha Hashem Ne'edari Vakoach. we me go it the Megillah. 144. There's another word that appears three times in the Megillah. That is the Shorish. Hebrew works with roots. It's good to know Hebrew. Hebrew works with roots. So let's see. Yimin appears three times. But there's another word that appears, I believe, three times. Verse number 6. Page 144. You mean Hashem ne'edari bakolach? Right? Ne'edari bakolach. The Yud is a poetic ending. Verse six, they translate glorious in power. Ne'edari bakolach. It's one. Um, just one sec. We gotta find this. one second. We'll find it.
1: One second. Hold on. Just one second, please. Just one second.
0: Yes. No, no, you mean three times, we know. It's a different word that appears three times. The Shosh is Aleph, Dali, Resh. Our David resh. Verse number six. Yemilcha Hashem Nedari Bakoach. Is number one. Number two is verse number ten. Saulu Ka'uferet B'Mayim Adirim. Is the second one. And number three is. Michamokha Ba'ilim Hashem. Michamokha Nedar Bakodesh. So I was thinking the following thought, which of course is obvious now so verse, obvious after the fact first, first verse of the first verse uh, I'm like, I'm, uh, my beloved friend you're reading first verses when does the, when does this, what's the, what is the story of Purim taking place it's, of it's, course it's, it's, in Adar it appears over and over uh, not just one time Adar is the critical it's very critical for a different reason actually I want to just explain this Adar is repeated I believe it's seven times in the last chapter Chodesh Adar the point is Chodesh Adar is of course a Babylonian name no doubt but Adar is a Hebrew book. The book is written in Hebrew, actually. It's very interesting. It's a Hebrew book. And there's no doubt that the Megillah is playing with both of those terms. Yeminich HaShem Nedari that The salvation is taking place in the month of Adar. The month of, Adar means glory or power. The month of power is the month that Amalek is defeated. And there's something very interesting about <laughs> the idea of the month of Adar. Apart from the fact that it plays off Nedar and Adirim and Mocha Bashem Nedar B'Kodesh, right? But, Nedarim, but there's something else about the Megillah that's very interesting. The Megillah, the Pshad of the Megillah, the plain simple shot of the Megillah. This will lead us into part two of all this. In the Megillah, the Megillah emphasizes when the Megillah gives you a chronology of events. What's interesting is the decree against the Jews is issued in the first month. Right? The month of Nisan. It's called the month of Nisan, the first month. And the Haman throws a cast a Lot. And the Lot falls in the twelfth month, called Chodesh Adar. Depending how you read the Megillah, it sounds like right away after he casts the Lot, not, the Megillah never says what day he casts the Lot, actually. But he goes to the king, the, the, the decrees are written on the thirteenth day of the twelfth, of the first month. That's when it's written. The thirteenth day. And the Lot, I personally believe they cast the Lot on the same day. That's not important for now. It's a different, different argument. But he, it doesn't really matter for our purposes. But the order, the decree goes out to kill all the Jews in the month of Adar on the 13th day, 12 months 11, la- 11 months later in Nisan. Now when you read the Megillah, it sounds like the moment Mord- Mordechai goes to the streets, it sounds like in the Megillah that the moment the Mordechai sees it posted on the walls of Shushan, he entreats Esther to go to the king. That's what it sounds like. It's not going to delay. You have to go right away, he says. He Zot. And it sounds like she agrees to go right away. And she says, fast me for three days. So it sounds like, if you take the Megillah's chronology this way, which many Gemari's do take it this way, it's certainly possible. They're fasting either on the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th, or the 14th, the 15th, and the 16th of Nisan. But the 14th, and 15th, and 16th, the 14th, and the 15th of Nisan, is Pesach, actually. So was the 16th. But the 14th is the day of the sacrifice, and the 15th is Chag HaMatzot. It sounds like they're actually fasting on Pesach. But in any event, whether they are or are not fasting on Pesach, the stronger point is that the first month, the 13th day, there's no mention of Pesach whatsoever in the Megillah. I think the stronger argument is that, forget about fasting on Pesach, Pesach is not, simply not mentioned. What is mentioned in the Megillah, actually, is the month of Adar. In the last chapter, in chapter 9 of the Megillah, where the Megillah gives us instructions how to celebrate this holiday. There's no book like it. Only the Megillah gives instructions about the celebration of the holiday. And it says there in the end of the Megillah, the following. says... talks about the festival of Purim as it is established which we're going to hopefully discuss soon (coughs) says the following Uh, bottom of page 1800 these days the days of Purim these days are remembered and performed in every generation so it talks about the days of Purim being performed in every generation, but in verse 22, right, when Mordechai writes his letters that hopefully we'll get to, <coughs> he instructs them to observe the 14th of Adar and the 15th of that month, and in verse 22, <coughs> According to the days that the Jews wrested from their enemies, and the month that was changed from sadness to joy and from mourning to festivity. So the Megillah speaks about two things about Purim. First, it talks about the days of Purim to be remembered in every generation. And secondly, it makes a more incredible statement. Mordechai says, not only these days should be remembered. right? Not only these days should be observed. But the month, ha-chodesh, the month of Adar. And when you talk about a month that is a special month, and within that month there's a day to be remembered in every generation, it points only in one direction. That's Pesach. Shomaret Chodesh Aviv. And how many times does the Torah tell us to remember Pesach? Well, now I believe... Chodesh <laughs> You can't say it more clearly. I believe this is in the chapters in this book that's coming out that the rabbinic tradition was extremely troubled by this because one can read the Megillah. That's the claim that I make. It's one might say a bit of a radical claim. <coughs> I think it's based on the text, and that is that the way the Megillah presents Purim, it does not present Purim as the festival you observe a month before Pesach. It presents Purim as the festival you observe instead of Pesach. Mm-hmm. There is no Pesach over here, and not only is no Pesach, by the way. And this is the claim for the. I believe it's it, it's actually what the Gemara discusses this and it and, and and reframes it actually. But actually, Purim is I would and the Gemara talks about this. Gemara understands Purim as to be a second Kabbalah Torah. I believe that's certainly the case. But I'm not sure it's the same Torah. That's my point. And it doesn't. And actually, it shouldn't be the same Torah. If you think about it, logically, it shouldn't be the same Torah because that Torah makes no sense for, the, for here. Because what is the Torah that we observe? The Ramban says it clearly. When you read the Chumash, it's very clear. When you come into the land, you will do this. And B, you should never forget. We should never forget the fact that we left Mitzrayim. But let me ask you a question. What if you What if you're still in Mitzrayim? What if actually you never leave? Because the land of Achashveirosh is the world, actually. But culturally, ethically, right. morally, right. Right. spiritually, it's right, top to bottom. There's a reason they chose the Joseph story to tell the story here. It's not an accident. The culture is the culture of Yosef with one added fact in the Megillah. You also have a Molech. It's Joseph plus a That That's the culture over here. Yosef doesn't have a Molech, he has Paro enough, with no Amalek. This is a book with Amalek. But let's say you let's say you're in Mitzrayim, and let's say you're not going to the land. There's no evidence whatsoever that this book suggests ever going to the land. Not at all. But
1: wait a second, Trump said that whether he was
0: exiled from the land. He was exiled. Of course, did he ever go back? But the, the, the Megillah talks about leaving Jerusalem. My question is, does the Megillah envision returning? There's no mention of the land. There's no mention of the temple. There's only a mention of leaving. And my point is, let's assume for a moment that you're not going to go back. Let's assume for a moment you're still in Mitzrayim. My point is that what the Megillah is saying is that the Torah that you're living, what is the Torah? The Torah is putting into practice the things that allow you to grow religiously, spiritually, connect to God. How could it possibly be the same Torah if you, if you what, that Torah would make no sense because you're not going to the land. If you assume that in the Megillah, the rabbis of the Talmud would, 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 don't buy that at all and they are the rabbi, they, 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 they offer a completely different reading. But my point is, that the rabbinic reading, this is very interesting stuff actually, the rabbinic reading actually, understood, the rabbis understood what the pshat is, but they, they, they're upset, because they don't want to take it in that direction, and therefore they make every attempt to reframe the Megillah, to take Purim and say it's not a distinct holiday which represents a different set of values. On the contrary, it's the acceptance of, 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 of the Torah of Sinai. It's the acceptance of the Torah of Eretz Yisrael. On the contrary, it, it leads you to Pesach, but Pesach always remains at the, at the center. Purim is the holiday that comes before Pesach. But when you read the Megillah, actually, you don't get that. At least, well, sorry, you don't get the sense. You can get whatever sense you want. But I'm offering a, an alternative reading which I think is a viable one. And by the way, I want to mention something else coming back to the point about Shirat Hayam and the, and the, Megillah, and, and, and the Megillah. And that is, I mentioned about Tipo Emos of about Ishimini, about Ador, about the Yeshuvu. By the way, I'll guarantee you now, sure, that when you see these four things, there are another ten lurking there. But I'll mention one more that just jumps right now. I think in the book I found more. I don't remember to say the truth, but constantly forgetting things which is actually very good because I can be mechadesh all the time (laughs) anyway there's something else interesting look at this verse look at this verse this is very interesting look at chapter page 1798 1798 it says the first it's three times nafal pachar right Three times you have the idea of the fear. The fear fell, falls on them on the last verse in chapter 8, then chapter 9, 171798, in verse number 2, and in verse number 3. And then you have verse number 4, which is very interesting. Verse number 4 is this. <speaking in Hebrew> So the three times we just encountered the statement, the fear fell upon them, which of course is the last two instantiations of fear in the Song of the Sea. Tipal alayam mata of The pasuk is that section of the shiratayam. The shiratayam is different sections. The section of shiratayam which describes fear begins with the following verse. Shamu amim gazun. Shamu amim yirgazul. The nations of the world hear yirgazul. They're frightened. They're troubled. They're whatever. So the begilla plays with that with that section. The section of fear begins in the Torah with Shamu amim yirgazul. Over here it's and the section ends with and the, and the verse ends with and now I'll tell you something else that's very interesting I'll tell you what it doesn't have Shirat Hayam actually concludes the, the continuation of that verse right is Ad Hashem Ad until they cross, they go to the other side. Right? Until they cross to the other mm-hmm. side. Ad Ya'varam Hashem, Ad Ya'varam Zukanita, This nation that you have is created, acquired, created. You will bring them to, the, to your holy mountain, your holy habitation, to your holy temple. God will reign forever. The continuation of the verse begins with Ad Ya'var. In the Megillah, though, you never do Over. The opposite is true. In the Megillah, the phrase that appears several times in the Megillah, in the Megillah is Volo Yavar. Yavar appears several times. And I think that's a very important point. The Megillah is not a book unlike the book of Daniel. Unlike, unlike Ezra and Nehemiah. Which talk about somebody who wants to go back to the land. Somebody who sees Jerusalem, Israel as part and parcel of our existence outside the land. Daniel prays, opens the windows to Jerusalem and prays three times a day. Ezra and Khamya, they want to go back to the land. They get the king, convince the king to allow us to, read, to make Aliyah. But the book of Esther has no such suggestions in any manner, shape, or form. It is true that some of the rabbinic texts try to read it in, and it's certainly true that some of the Gushniks nowadays who <coughs> interpret, my buddies, try to read it in. But with all due respect to their reading, I think it holds very little water. I don't think this. Is good, I think it's a poor reading. I don't think the Megillah actually has any such suggestion. In fact, that's a very striking contrast between jo- the story of Yosef and the Megillah. The story of Yosef ends clearly with the ark, the coffin. Joseph says, "I'm going to die someday. God will take us back. Bury me back in the land." The Yosef—that's that's how the statement of ends with a sense of return. The Megillah, though, doesn't end with a sense of return. The Megillah ends with Achashverosh levying a tax on the uh, isles that, that he possesses. So, this is but this is another good example, I think, of this verse. So my point is that what I'm suggesting is a, a different way to read the Megillah using Shirat actually. That the other way to read the Megillah is to say that God actually is not absent, nor is God only a player from the distance. But there is actually another way to read it, that God is an active agent over here, and on, on the contrary, that God is using the human beings who, when you fight Amalek, have to join the battle. God uses Mordechai, Ishimini, God uses Esther, who's not going to be ha tacharishi resh because he can't be silent, and um, yeah and God is now the truth of the matter is that the Megillah actually references Amalek in a very direct way it references Amalek in some indirect ways but it actually references Amalek in a direct way because what does the Torah say about Amalek the Torah says in chapter 17 of Shemot the Torah says God instructs Moshe Moshe Ketov Zot zikaron basayfer v'sim de Yoshua. Moses to write something down in a book. The first time in the Torah that we have writing actually is Amalek. First time. Ketov zikaron Ketov write basayfer in a book. Tell Yoshua, I will destroy Amalek someday. And then the chapter, the verse ends. The section ends. dor. There's a war against Amalek in every generation. How does McGill and Esther end? You know,
1: it should be noted that the, the ten sons are listed.
0: Ten sons are not the end. Yeah. The ten sons are...
1: Also, some gave a big crack. Near the crowd there were ten people. Some of you really didn't come,
2: you
0: know, Well, if your point is that the Nazis are a mole, like, I, I happen to agree with you.
2: Yeah.
0: But... Um, But actually, there's a very interesting thought about Amalek. Is Amalek actually a particular people, or is it a concept? I think you can make, actually, it starts at the people, obviously. But I think you can make a very strong claim. I'm not talking about the Hasidic masters who teach this. I'm saying the pshat is that way, actually. I think you can make a very good argument, which I've made myself many times, and the pshat of the Tanakh Amalek turns into a concept yes. By the way, Haman's armies are not Amalekites
2: mm-hmm. It's very
0: important to remember right, right. The story of the Megillah Haman is called the Agaghi. Okay, Agag is the king of Amalek The truth is the word Amalek never appears in the Megillah It's very striking You would expect the word Amalek in the Megillah never appears The references to Amalek abound mm-hmm. The word Amalek never appears He's called Agag The fact of the matter is Okay, he's one bad guy but the armies of Haman, right? right? right. It's clear in the Megillah that the armies of Haman yeah. are people in each of these 127 states right. Right. who apparently, I, I would say he's probably bought them, right. paid them or whatever, and they are, or maybe they're just bad guys. But the fact is, these are not Amalekites by any, in I any biological sense right. whatsoever. Right. It's right. obvious. Okay. These well, are Amayaris. They are people drawn to this particular ideology. Yep. Or they do it for the money, or whatever it is. Yes. But there is no sense in the Megillah whatsoever that this is a Malak. A may not even exist at this point, but the fact is they do exist from a. But there's other arguments, even better arguments. Right, I can't get into that now. Exactly this point that a is in fact a concept already. Now look at the Megillah. At the end of the Megillah, you have at the end of the Megillah. First of all, the Megillah said Mordechai and asked to send these letters. And these days are called Purim. And the Megillah says the following. Megillah says, on the bottom of page 1800, These days, these days of Purim, Nizkarim v'naasim Dar v'adar. They are remembered, Nizkarim. Remember, there were three terms they used for Malik: Katov zot zikaron. So ketiva, zikaron. And then Muhammad Shemba Molet Mi Dar in every generation. He have two of them right off the bat. Hayamima ewa Niskarim Binasim Bekodar Vadar. These are these are these days are remembered in every generation. Bekhodar Vadar. So you have the idea of memory in every generation, right? And then the verse concludes, right? Vizikhram Ra Mizaram. And then the section concludes, Umamara Ster, Kiyam Divraya Purima Ma Ewe. It's written down in the Sefer. So the point is that here you have all three terms actually. And and by the way, what is the Torah reading for the day of Purim? That story of Amalek is the Torah reading for Purim day. Get the Megillah. You read about Amalek. But the Megillah itself actually is Ketiva, Zikaron, and Sefer, and Dar Dar actually. Dar Dar. Right? You have all four terms, writing down, memory, book, and every generation. So the Megillah is referring, Megillah is saying, in effect, that this book that we're studying, the book that we're reading on, on Purim, is primarily about Amalek. It's clear, even though the word Amalek doesn't appear.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But, the, but the obligation to remember Amalek, the obligation to remember is something so essential to the Megillah, and what we're remembering is the salvation of Purim. We're also remembering Amalek. That, that's, that's, that's the obligation to remember. So this is a very good example of how our text. is clearly, Amalek is clearly at the center. Now, Amalek, is chapter 17, which, as we see, is intimately connected to chapter 15, because chapter 17 is what happened after our questioning Hayesh Hashem B'kirbeinu imayin and all the doubts and in that context Vayavu Amorek Amorek comes and there's something deeper about it actually it
2: says, the, something
0: deeper yeah
1: y- Yaref Yagev
0: Ayesh V'yagev Elo Yireh
1: Hashem Elohim
0: what about it Elo that the Israelites do not really fear God that's the question that refers to I'll address what you're saying Here's the point about Amalek and, and the Megillah. The connection is so, so deep. Because what is Amalek actually? I mean, so, Amalek comes from two different places. But basically, there's two sources for Amalek in the, in the, in the Torah. Two sources. But fundamentally, the, the way Amalek operates in the Chumash and beyond Amalek attacks people... <coughs> At their weakest point, that's what Amalek does. The verse that you cited, which is actually in Zvarim, Remember what Amalek did? called to remember Amalek. Right? Sohar to remember Amalek. They attacked when you were ayefer or You were weary and tired. And then b'lo Elohim is not clear whether it refers to Amalek or to, or to the Jews. It's very unclear. It could refer to both. I prefer, like you, the interpretation refers to the Jews. But it doesn't matter. The point is, in any event, they attack you at a moment of weakness. I would say not only do they attack you at a moment of weakness, but they do something else in the the Bible, which is, even when they don't attack you at a moment of weakness, they function to expose your weakness. Because there's another story where they didn't actually attack us. We attack them. It's the story of King Saul, Shaor HaMelech, he attacked Amalek. But he didn't totally obliterate Amalek. And then, afterwards, when the prophet says to him, why didn't you destroy Amalek, he starts with the excuses. Well, the people did this, the people did that. So the point is, in that story, actually, Shaul is deposed as king. It's not that Amalek attacked him because he's weak, but Amalek functions to bring out the weaknesses. Now, in the Megillah, Haman is a classical um, Amalekite actually because of what he says. He says it straight up. He says to the king He says to the king There's one nation out there they're scattered and dispersed he says. So they can't fight us. So it doesn't even pay to keep them alive. He thinks it's a simple matter to destroy them because they're Fuzar umma farad, scattered, dispersed, disunited. They have, no, they, have no, they have no state, they have no and they land. Have,
1: and they will have,
0: to have <coughs> the head of the above us. I mean, you think, think, right, we'll just join, we'll, 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 we'll wipe up In other words, the, the way he functions like an Amalekite. But the point is, apart from that, I would say before you get to that, you get to the language.
2: Mm-hmm. And there are
0: many, we're not studying the Megillah in any depth now, but there are many, many pieces, many phrases in the Megillah which are phrases from the story of Amalek. And this is actually very, it's actually like, striking, in effect. So point is that, to summarize what we have in this first little part, I wanted to make the point, Hanukkah and Purim have something in common, actually, in the sense, Hanukkah clearly is a, a Migdash festival in which Hawel is at the center. Hawel, in turn... Is, as I demonstrated yesterday, is largely based upon the great song of the Jewish people, which is Shiratayam. Hayam. But I wanted to make the following argument, and that is, whatever you make of it, okay, there are pieces of Shiratayam that appear prominently in the Megillah. So I offer the interpretation of that, what to make of all these phrases, the interpretation being that a viable way to read the Megillah is to see that the Megillah essentially is a playing out of God's war against Amalek, in which God is conscripting allies into the battle. The, ally, the main ally is, is Mordechai Ishimini. Ishi Hashem. He's the God's right hand. He's the one who recognizes the danger of Amalek. The wickedness of Amalek refuses to acknowledge it, to bow down to it. Through Mordechai you get Esther. Through Esther you get the successful, you get the king and the allies and all that and that the Megillah is effect, effectively referencing Amalek, of course, but that the Song of the Sea, it sees as intimately tied into Amalek. It sees Amalek as, in a certain sense, undoing the possibilities of Shirat Hayam, and with the destruction, or the temporary destruction of Amalek, you can go back to Shirat Hayam, which the world acknowledges God, Tipol Aleim Emata Vafachad, or in the words of the Megillah, so this is the end of part one of what I wanted to say. Okay? I thought it would take 30 minutes. Okay. Now, all right, now I must say, leave, leave, leave me out of it. You know what I mean? This stuff is unbelievable, actually. You begin to forget the artistry of the Megillah, for starters. In other words, What you realize is actually a very important point. I said this before, but I'll say it again. When you find ten connections to something, and this is true, but I think I understand something, I find many connections, you know for sure, Well, there are ten more you're not seeing. Because that's the way it works. These texts are so unbelievably bound up together, and every word is weighed, and the question is to to see the connections, and the real challenge is to figure out what it might signify, which is good good people and good scholars can disagree what it signifies the different... I made one suggestion that the Megillah is a book that lends itself to multiple readings, more than any other book, and part of it has to do with... it's a book of, I would say, where basically you're sort of on your own. In other words, it's a book in which God is certainly never... the bottom line is, God is never mentioned in the book. Let's not forget that. Um, Okay, with all my Chachmas, I don't deny the fact that God is not mentioned in the book. So it's a book that lends itself, one might say, it's a book that is it's dwelling in, in, uh, in a place of, of deep unknowing and also very deep darkness. Uh, and in a place of deep unknowing, it lends itself to, we're doing our best to try to figure it out, to cast the light, we we're hoping for the lights of, 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 of understanding, but it's not so simple. Okay, this is part one. Now. It's already after 11 o'clock. It's already it's quarter, quarter to 12. Okay. So I think is what I'd like to do. Just, I think, let's take 15 or so minutes. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to, the topic is Hanukkah and Purim and the differences between them. Uh, there are many commonalities between them. Two, two minor holidays. But what I'd like to look at is, I mentioned before, the idea of a text. The holiday of Purim is a holiday that, practically speaking, revolves around a text, which is Megillah. And it's a text that, first of all, is very dear to the Jewish people. And it's a text that actually, we, not only we say it, we've recited twice, I mean, it's unbelievable. Not only in the daytime, which is in the Mishnah, but the Gemara adds an additional reading. So it Gemara says, not only in the day, but even at night. The Mishnah doesn't know from the second reading, but the Gemara has a second reading. That's our practice. We read it at night, and again in the day. So the idea of a sefer is very significant. Sefer is conspicuously missing in Hanukkah. There is no book on Hanukkah. So I'd like you to take look at chapter 9 and just to think about... Chapter 9 is an unusual chapter. You can begin, actually, in beginning and even in verse 16. Um, verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 15, to the end of the chapter, and to think about the following very interesting thought... The McGill is the only book we have, I think, as far as I can see, that actually describes how the holiday of Purim comes into being, the stages in the formation of the holiday of Purim. So I'd like you to look at this on your own, and we'll discuss it in 20 minutes. How's that? When I think of faith,
2: Talk of let's say putting out a
1: little lamb so the lamb can come out and I can catch it or fight it. Yes. When you talk about the
2: human
1: being put at play, right. I'm not 100% sure I'm clear because I think of a molek as not needing any bait, it's just out wow. there at all exactly. times, all the time. Can yeah. you please elaborate
0: on that? It's yeah. A molek is the enemy, but Amalek picks its moments. Amalek, something has to instigate Amalek. In other words, they, they're not necessarily, in the Megillah, something, now the point is, what we mean instigate? What do we mean instigate? I mean one guy doesn't bow down to you, you'll destroy an entire people. So it doesn't need too much instigation. In other words, the point is, there's a, a core hatred. The truth is that in the Megillah, It's a longer answer. I said before, Amalek, there are two sources for Amalek in the Torah. One source, notice Amalek is two things. Amalek is, from one perspective, God's enemy. And if you see Amalek as God's enemy, then Amalek essentially, it begins begins in the Garden of Eden. It begins with the snake, actually. The snake is presented to us in the Chumash as God's enemy. Whatever the motive of the snake is, and can't get into that now, I have a hypothesis, but the, um, the snake is actually the enemy of God, primarily. Now, the, being the enemy of God, the snake wants to just defeat God's plan. God's plan in the beginning of the Chumash, second creation story, is that the human beings whom God has created are special little creatures, and God can occupy the same space. That's God's plan. The God. human being whom God favors in the beginning in Ghanaden and God will live together. That's God's plan. There's ah. a little garden and they're going to live together. And the human has special rights that primarily can eat, can eat the fruit of the trees and the snake resents that. The snake is like all the other animals is not allowed to eat the fruit. Snakes, The animals are only permitted to eat the uh, vegetation but not the fruit. Oh,
2: yeah.
0: And the snake is angry at God for limiting the snake, whom the snake feels is equal to the human. (laughs) There are a mean, I'm a room, so the snake sets out to defeat God's plan and to defeat God's plan, the snake wants to separate God from the human and the snake uh, approaches the woman about the fruit, etc. etc. At the end of that story, the human being is banished from the garden. So Actually, the scorecard reads at the end of round one, snake one, God zero. That's so that's a, zero. Sna- a
2: human.
0: zero. humans zero. yeah, but the snake is not primarily, in that telling, primarily the enemy of the human. The snake primarily is the enemy of God. That's that's one way to read that story. Then and that Amalek is a, is derivative of that, and the snake is like, come on, snake attacks you with the weakest point. The snake's the eternal enemy, etc. Then there's another source for Amalek, which is very important. I can't teach the whole Chumash on you know what I mean? But the point is that Amalek is coming from a different place. I should ever forget Amalek is Esav's grandson. So Amalek is coming from a different place, which is Amalek is the part of Esav that never forgives Yaakov for what Yaakov did to Esav. What Yaakov did to Esav was to take advantage of Esav's weakness. Esav came back from the field. But you've always <coughs>
1: well,
0: you're close. But who are you? But it's a for Yageah. In other words, and then Yaakov becomes Yisrael. Yaakov becomes transformed. Amalek doesn't buy it. Amalek's is the part of Esav, actually, that didn't accept Jacob's transformation. Amalek is the part of Esav that wants to repay Yaakov for what Yaakov did. Yaakov took advantage of Esav's weakness. And that's his, his physical weakness. But his lack of understanding, etc., etc., etc. So Amalek is actually that piece. And There are two different pictures of Amalek. The first Amalek is primarily God's enemy, the second Amalek is primarily Israel's enemy. That's very different. They both coexist, they're both true. When you read the Megillah, one of the interesting questions is is the Amalek of the Megillah primarily Israel's enemy? or primarily God's enemy, if I had to pick one of them, I would say it's primarily Israel's enemy. And that. And you'll find in the Megillah, how do you know? Because you'll find in the Megillah many references to Asaph, actually. Many, many references to Asaph and Yaakov. And Amalek is derivative of Asaph and Yaakov. That would be a separate Shia and pretty interesting one, actually. But these are core, very core ideas of the tarah. How they play out and all the nuances is, is very interesting. So that's, anyway, let me just say, since we only have about 15 or so minutes, let me just say something about the last chapter of Megillah Esther. The main point is to get you more interested in, in the Megillah, which is an awesome, it's awesome. But, uh, but you don't start, the place to start learning Chumash is Rishi, Paragalaf, anyway, but then... So the Megillah is, like I said, it describes the way this holiday emerges, holiday of Purim. It's radically different from Hanukkah, By Hanukkah and Purim, they're similar in certain ways, Aranissim for both, gratitude for deliverance from both, but they're totally different. And Purim, I would say, is, I, would, I call it a text holiday. Purim is a holiday I which the safer is at the center. Yes, the book of Maccabees, I know about it, interesting book, should be studied by historians. Bottom line, not part of our Bible. Not part of the Jewish canon. Period. End of report. There's nothing to talk about, actually. It's simply not part of Kitver Kodesh. That's the end of it. You want to study it? I'm all in favor, actually. But it's not part of the Kitver Kodesh. And therefore, a cannot be called a text holiday, there's no Torah for Hanukkah. There's no Torah. The is a Torah for, for Purim. Megillah, which is not just any old Torah, but the Megillah is a beloved part of our whether it's in Qumran or not, it makes no difference. The Megillah is very central to us, and I would say that post-Shoah, it's a book that speaks to me, i got to say, yes. it speaks to me because it reflects the world in which we live, actually. because Basically, as I see it, a very dark place. Yeah. And. the
1: fact uh, that spent so much time talking about when we read this,
0: there's a whole Mesechta called Mesechet Megillah. There's no Mesechet Purim, by the way. Purim virtually doesn't appear in the Mesechta. In other words, in the Mishnaiyot, the Mishnah of Mesechet Megillah never mentions Matanot um, uh, Mishloach Manot. It's never mentioned. Never. The Mishnah doesn't. So the Mishnah is, is down towards Purim, but the Mishnah focuses, on, not just focuses on Megillah. What is fascinating about the Mishnayos in Megillah is that in the tractate Megillah, the first two chapters of which talk about reading the Megillah, but the third and fourth chapter of Mesechet Megillah talk about the Beit and talk about reading the Torah. It actually boggles the mind that Torah reading is essentially a piece of Mesechet Megillah. When you read Mesechet Megillah, you get the sense that Megillah is the thing you really read. But in addition, is Kriyat HaTorah. Kriyat HaTorah is the last chapters of, 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 of Mesechet Megillah. So we a total focus on the text. Now, the Megillah itself gives us a sense of how this holiday emerges. And I just wanted to, to make the point about, the, the book is self-referential in a certain way. The, the Megillah says the following. The first point, the, and it's very relevant to Purim actually, and you don't have us with Hanukkah at all. Hanukkah is mamish a Jewish holiday. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, given the fact that it falls on December t- uh, 25th this year, and it falls around the same time as Christmas, um, and Jews have been living in lands in which Christmas was celebrated, although Christmas, by the way, is, someone showed me an article yesterday. It's really, really the way Christ, It's right. Christmas right. has gone through many, many, many twists and turns about the celebration. Many... The Puritans were against celebrating Christmas. Oh, there are
1: Christians who don't celebrate. Right, so Christmas... So, the only founders of the country didn't celebrate. What? what? The only founders of the U.S. today didn't celebrate Christmas. Washington the
2: those
0: people? Right. They, Christmas has become... <coughs> the people who do celebrate Christmas are uh, Bergdorf Goodman. They celebrate it. I mean, what is it? It's become very commercialized, you
2: know? <laughs> Amazon.com.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and they only pay their taxes
2: afterwards. The
0: point is that you know, Hanukkah is a very pure Jewish holiday. It's a holiday that's centered in the, in the Beit HaMikdash. It's very pure. There's no, as far as I can see, any Christian influences in terms of, I mean, there are influences in terms of nowadays, but at its core, it's very Jewish. That's not true of Purim. Purim at its core, is at its core, where it starts out as a non-Jewish holiday in the Megillah. because the Megillah says, that on the year that the Jews have defeated their enemies, we were able to withstand Haman's armies and defeat them. The Megillah makes it very clear, as I'm sure you saw. It says that the Jews fought on the 13th of Adar, and they rested on the 14th of Adar. o'to, yom mishtev simcha, and they made that day a day of mishtev simcha, and the same thing is true of the Jews who fought in Shushan on the 14th as well. And they rested on the 15th. And we are so auto you Yomai Mishtev This is found in um, Pasuk uh, Yudchet. Mishtev is there. Let me get my glasses and find the other Pasuk. Was the other one... Yes, Yudzayin. Verse number 17, on page 1799. Yom Mishtev And in verse number... Eighteen, the Jews in Shushan rested. On the day they rested, they made a day of mishdevah simcha. Mishdevah simcha, mishdevah is literally to drink, to drink and to rejoice. You can't read the Megillah without noticing that there are a lot of parties in the Megillah. Esther, in fact, there are ten. The idea of a part, there are ten parties in the Megillah. It's one of the framing techniques of the Megillah, and the first parties are hosted by Ahashverosh and Vashti. Fretz Achashverosh has two parties, then he has another one for Esther. So you're talking about the Megillah presents, and Esther invites the king to two parties. Partying and drinking is what goes on in Persia as described by the Megillah. So when the Jews who defeat their enemies are resting, when you read in the context of the Megillah, it's clear that what we have over here is something like New Year's or something like that. It's basically it's not a Jewish celebration.
2: It's, it's the
0: way Persians celebrate good times and it's Mishnah B'Simcha. There's nothing Jewish about Mishdev B'Simcha. That's point number one. It starts out that way actually. And what's interesting in the Megillah, it's nothing like it actually, that the Megillah says then the Megillah continues in verse nineteen. Here it says, Therefore the Jews, some of these verses are very difficult, by the way. The Jews who live in the dispersed cities, I'd say, here they translate unwalled cities, which I don't believe is the best interpretation. The Mara interprets that way, but I don't think so. Anyway, the Jews observe the fourteenth of Adar as the day of Simcha Mishtev Yom Tov so this verse added two things. It's not like he's talking about nowadays when the writer is whoever the writer is is recording this. Therefore, the Jews observe the fourteenth today. Simcha Yomtov, yom tov. What does yom tov mean? Means a day of joy. It doesn't mean yom tov as we call it. Tomorrow it takes it that way. But the shot of yom tov in the Bible means a day of rejoicing, and they send gifts to their friends. That's the observance recorded so far. And then in verse 20, it says that Mordechai sent around Svarim. He sends letters around. The sending of letters is widespread in the Megillah. And Mordechai sends Svarim to all the Jews. And what's interesting is what he says. It's very critical to the understanding of Purim. He says the following. First he says in verse 21, Ukayeim alihem, to uh to charge them is to certify to to validate means to instruct them essentially we also see in yom haba saw yohol shada veyom chamish saw ba bkhoshada kayamim shana acher ba yam hayudim ayavhem biachodesh shenafakh hem yogan gusmi cham hayev tov asot tam imei 12 simcha umeshruach banot israeli yom so Mordechai writes the letters to the Jews, and he seems to add two things in the letters. <coughs> First of all, what's interesting is that Mordechai, in his letter, instructs the Jews to observe the 14th and the 15th of Hadar. The previous verse, by the way, only mentioned observing the 14th. It didn't mention the 15th. Mordechai instructs the Jews to observe the 14th and the 15th. Now, what's not clear in the Megillah is whether Mordechai meant some Jews should observe the 14th and some Jews should observe the 15th as we do today, or whether Mordechai meant that all Jews should observe both days. That in the Megillah is not clear. Think about that practice. We practice a certain way. We have I say what the pshat is in the Megillah, this very unquote is clear, though, is that Mordechai singles out the fifteenth of the month because it's not mentioned earlier. It's mentioned the Jews rested on it was mentioned, right? the no. Jews in Shushan rested on the fifteenth. No. and they made it that year. But what about for the future? And what about the Jews on the uh, the other places? That's only Shushan. Only in Shushan did they fight on the fourteenth and rest on the fifteenth.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So Mordechai sounds like he's saying that all Jews should minimally be aware of the fact and in some sense should respect the 15th, maybe he's even saying they should observe, everybody should observe two days, which would not be a crazy idea. And the plain reading of the Megillah, if we didn't know the present practice, it's only a viable option. Whether it's the best reading or not is a good question. But what he certainly added, in addition to that, and what is very central, he added gifts to the poor. Now, added gifts to the poor, is very significant extremely significant and the reason for that is the following the Chumash speaks about days of joy actually in the Torah in the book of Durarim two holidays are singled out in the Chumash which are days of joy the Gemara expands it to some degree in the Torah there are two festivals that are joyous what are the two? One is, of course, is Sukkot. We eat Sukkot is the festival. It's about Sukkot is one. And the other one is Shavuot. The Torah never mentions Sibcha and Pesach, by the way, ever. But Shavuot and Sukkot are days of Sibch. In both of those cases, chapter 15 and 16 of Devarim, when the Torah talks about joy, the holiday of joy, the Samachda Bechagecha, and then it, it, it says, Atar, Ubincha, Bitecha, Abdecha, Matcha, Gercha, Yata, mamana, Levi. It says in both places the identical thing. You shall rejoice, you and your family, children, and then the stranger, and the Levi, who has no land, and the widow, and the orphan. And, the, and that's what the Torah emphasizes in Simcha in each case. Simcha is in the Chumash, Simcha before God, is always including people that don't have so the point is, when Mordechai adds Matonos Levionim, okay? It's not a detail over here. What Mordechai is doing is radically changing the nature of, uh, of, of this festival, Purim. It starts off as a, as a Persian festival. And then what Mordechai did was he turned it, he converts it into a Jewish festival primarily. He didn't eliminate the drinking, by the way. Maybe they, Maybe that's like, Zera, Shein Rol Vatzimu Yechohem Ramon Bo. You realize that you, you're not going to change that. So Purim is a very funny holiday then. Purim at its core is not Jewish. But Mordechai and Esther converted it into a Jewish holiday, and they do so in the following way in this chapter. The first point is Matanot your That's number one. The second point is Shushan Purim, because Mordechai's point is a simple point. There are other Jews who are still fighting on the 14th. So you can't be, simply celebrate the 14th if there were Jews in Shushan that are still at risk. So therefore, there's two days of Purim. There's the 14th and the 15th. Then we have number three, which I mentioned before, which is very important, and that is later on in this chapter, where the Megillah says, ha <laughs> karim these days are remembered and observed in every generation. And here we come to the idea of memory, which is, in the Bible, a, an ethical category, not just an intellectual one. The idea of memory is central in general, but especially in the Megillah, and I want to just explain why it's central in the Megillah. The Megillah describes a world. It says parasu Modai, but it's actually the world. The, the world Achashverosh is king of the world the calls him HaMelech frightening thought but he is the king of the world the culture of Achashverosh is reminiscent of the culture that the Chumash describes in Sefer Breshi with Paro it's the culture of seeing and taking which is what he sees and he takes whatever he wants it's the culture which every person is judged by how useful they are to the to the king, yeah. and it's a culture when nobody has any memory. Mm-hmm. But the, the culture of Mitzray and the story of it, are yeah. actually reading these parashiyah now. Mm-hmm. Right? The last week's parsha, the last postul. Joseph says to the butler, you're going to get out of jail in three days. Remember me. He forgets them Three days later. Mm-hmm. But in this week's parashiyah, he actually remembers him. Because in this week's parashiyah, he case When Pharaoh has bad dreams, so he asks his wise men, his magicians, and no one can explain it, and then the butler speaks up. I want to remember, recall my sin today. He reminds Pharaoh about Joseph in jail. So he forgets three days later, but he remembers two years later. So how is that possible? To forget three days later, but to remember two years later. (laughs) Shorter memory is not the problem here. Right. No,
2: motivation. motivation is the problem. He
0: doesn't care. He, 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 he'll never, he doesn't care about Joseph. Joseph helped him out, let him rot in jail. But two years later, the Pharaoh says, who can help me out?
2: Then ah, then he
0: can help out Pharaoh. So he suddenly he remembers. Mitzrayim is a place which has no memory. By the way, there's a, very, there's a very deep point about not having a memory because you have no memory. It's the first sin in the Torah. It's the sin of taking from the tree, from the fruit, and not remembering, the, no, it's not taking into account the context. You take, you, you take what you see. There's no context to it. There's no memory. So the story of is that way. Someone saves his life, he writes it down in a book. He never reads the book. Yeah. Never read until one night he can't sleep for whatever reason. Oh, fine, the then, either that or he's searching for something. Something that bothers him. Something that Why is Haman coming to two parties? What do we got on Haman? He passed all the tests. What do we got on Haman's enemies? In other words, one way to read the Megillah. It's interesting: is is he find, does he find it by accident, or is he looking? That's the question. Sefer HaZichro no. knows. Mm-hmm. He's searching for it. He searches for the... He, he remembers when it suits his purposes. If it doesn't suit his purposes, he never remembers. It's a place with no memory. Saramashkin, we're never going to remember to so it suits his own purposes. Then suddenly he remembers. Purim is the holiday. Hayamim Eila Karim binasim B'Khodar V'Adar. Right. They give Zikaroh, a memory, and not just Amalek, which is to remember Amalek, of course. Tov zikaron vasefer, right? But beyond that, to remember these events and to try to learn from these events, not to forget them, not to forget... So that is what's added into the Megillah. The way we remember is by reading the Megillah, actually. But the Megillah speaks about memory in general. So suddenly we have a holiday in which we have uh, memory, and we have a text over here, we have sfarim, and we have matanot levionim. And suddenly, Poem becomes, sounds like a Jewish holiday to us. It's a Jewish holiday. At its roots, it's not actually. At its roots, it was the celebration was Persian. But Mordechai and Esther both are teaching the community how to celebrate properly, and that's the and then there's one last piece to this chapter, which I'll very briefly say, which is this: the end of the very end of this chapter, Esther actually, by Tchetova Esther Malka, and she says something else. She says that she writes words of peace and truth. Or I would translate words of true peace. Mm-hmm. To observe these days as Mordechai and Esther took upon themselves and as, the, and as they have accepted upon themselves the days of fasting and supplication. The end of the Megillah, Mordechai and Esther saying something else about the story, which is very true, and that is, don't think that the holiday of Purim is a celebration and that's all it is. Because that's not the case. Because in the Megillah, unlike Hanukkah, for example, is Amalek. Amalek is, these days, these things are remembered, b'chadar v'adar. So therefore, the Megillah and Purim have another side to it, which is when you read the story, you remember something else. We do celebrate if we don't sell it because we believe the problems have been solved, we understand very well that the core problems of the Megillah, the core dangers of the Megillah, which are two. One is Amalek, Hamad. He's always there. And the second is Achashverosh. The two of them are great, are very dangerous people. One because he has no morals at all. He's a moral person. Whatever suits him. It's Achashverosh. Maybe he's also a Tipesh. And the other is actually evil. You have a world of indifference and you have evil in the world. That's a very dangerous combination. So that's Esther's last piece over here. In studying this book, we study it to be aware not just of the salvation. We study it to be aware of the potential difficulties that lie ahead. It's a prescription for how one lives in this world, actually. You make your choices. We're reminded of Esther, what Esther did and her courage and sacrifice and all that. But the story continues, it's not the end of the story. So that's Purim. Purim is a completely different field than Khanik. It's at its core, Purim is relating to the world as we of exile, God's absence, the dangerous place. It's run by, by bad people. On the other hand, in this world of darkness, you can find some light. Khanik <laughs> is different. Khanik is all about the light. Khanik is all about the Middash. Kharik is about God's place in the world. We celebrate God's place in the world. So those are two different minor holidays, but that's a minor, two different ways of of celebrating, of seeing the world, and of seeing our place in the world.